One Hope Church. Glad you're here today on this uh, rainy December day as it starts to feel a little bit like winter. Just a smidge. <laughs> Might be getting there. Um, personally, I'm, I'm cool with like 70-some degrees all year round. I don't, I don't need seasons if it's 70-some degrees. Uh, I'm good. So anyway, some of you may feel differently about that. But this morning, we're going to continue in uh, the book of Acts. Um, we're in chapter 8. We'll be beginning in verse 26. Um, the lesson this morning, we would call it Go South Man. Um, so that's what we've got here. It's called Go South Man. And we'll... Uh, well, that'll make some sense as we go along here. Um, but this lesson today in the book of Acts is about Philip um, and the one we know as the Ethiopian eunuch. Um, and so, you know, we're going to look at that this morning from the book of Acts. But I wanted to talk um, a little bit before we get into that, some biblical history um, of Ethiopia and some other Ethiopians in the Bible to consider um, before we get here to Acts. So we have a We can kind of set the scene and understand what's going on here. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and uh, then we'll get into the Word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege to come and to worship you. We do um, declare to you this morning, God, as we sang that, uh, Lord, you are um, beautiful, that your, your love and your grace are beautiful to us. We're so thankful Lord, our prayer is that we, um, those we know and love and our children, uh, most of all, would just worship you out of pure hearts. Lord, that's our heart's desire uh, this morning. Um, Spirit within us desires this. Lord, make it true in our lives, we pray, uh, that we would just seek to worship you, dear God. We thank you for giving us your son Jesus, and what that means in our lives and and how it changes everything as it changes everything for this Ethiopian eunuch that we'll study today in the book of Acts, Lord, that we see um, how meeting you, dear Jesus, changes everything. And so, Lord, we thank you for this great truth. In your name, Jesus, we pray it. Amen. Amen. All right. So a little bit from the history of, of Ethiopia in, in biblical times, in the Old Testament, um, Ethiopia and, and the land of Cush are basically synonymous. Um, the, geog- the geography is a little bit different than what we think of Ethiopia today with its current you know, modern boundaries. So if you, if you have in your mind, in, in your world map here, the nation of, of Egypt, um, which mostly is um, what it was in biblical times, but just a, you know, slightly different. So if you go from southern Egypt down into the Sudan, that would be um, Ethiopia in biblical times. Uh, moving over toward the east, toward the Arabian you know, Peninsula. And it's possible that it even actually went into the southern Arabian Peninsula, what is modern-day Yemen, that at times that the um, Ethiopian Empire controlled some of that land as well. Um, so it's a, it was a massive kingdom. They often fought against the Egyptians. They often fought with the Egyptians. Because um, sometimes the, um, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend when it comes to you know, national politics. L- many of them, and largely the, Ethiopian, um, the Ethiopians there in the land of Cush, uh, took on the ways of the Egyptians, took on the Egyptian gods, and they kept that culture even longer than the Egyptians themselves did. Um, so through the various, you know, changes of, of rulers over time, you know, we have to understand that a lot of um, history, just in general, is the history of of war. It's the history of some human beings trying to advance their personal, you know, gain. Um, at the expense of others, to take what others have for one's own purposes, to take what others have to provide for one's own safety. But history is, is largely about people conquering people. Um, and it's a sad you know, reality. 
And so if you know if you live your whole life without seeing warfare yourself or without having warfare in your own in your own city in your own community that you live your whole entire lifetime without that experience you have to take that as a blessing because that's not necessarily a normative experience you know to to live basically you know, without fear, like we don't, we don't really fear like, well, the Canadians are going to come down and try to take Georgia, you know, or, or people from, you know, south of us are going to try to come north and, and, and just take, you know, by war, going to take, take land. Uh, you know, in our time, that's not really like in our everyday thoughts of, hey, I wonder what these people are going to do to just come in and, and just massively take over our territory. We may consider more than we used to the possibility of, of being in the wrong place at the wrong time in some sort of, you know, terrorist act. But, but we would view that as almost like a random event, not as a, you know, everyday sort of possibility, re- reality. Um, so I think we need to, to kind of get a, a grip of that a little bit and say, you know, it, it's a, it shows the sinfulness of human beings Throughout history, and we shouldn't remove ourselves from that. And we have to understand that those that we, you know, that we call our friends and neighbors, like everybody on our planet, basically is capable of taking up arms against their, you know, someone else. You know, and and to think that oh, you know, the people our communities are so much more civilized and all of this stuff. Please, you know, the human heart hasn't really changed over thousands of, of years, and especially the human heart, apart from a relationship with God, is, is willing to, just to go and to take what other people have. And there's obviously, you know, I'm not getting into a whole thing here on, you know, just war and when it's right to defend yourself and when it's not, and, you know, all those sorts of things. That's for another, another time, another place. But I just want us to understand um, the, the, the biblical history in the human history, there's a lot of warfare, you know, that goes on in it because you, you're dealing with real human beings here and real, real nations and real people. These are not made-up stories. You can look at, you know, not just the biblical history but archaeological evidence and outside sources to verify that these things, you know, happened and happened in the way that the Bible describes them um, where there is that. So... Now, so because of that, because of Ethiopia's warring against Israel at times, there are parts of the Bible that talk about judgment against Ethiopia. And, you know, the same thing is true for, you know, Assyria um, or for Babylon or for these, you know, for other um, nations surrounding, surrounding Israel. But we have to understand that that's not the whole story and that's not God's only involvement with those nations. And we'll see that here. But just to read from Psalm um, 68, verse 31, it says, Nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush, Ethiopia, shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord, to him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. Behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice, ascribe power to God. And so, you know, we see, you know, even in the Old Testament, we see that, um, in other other places, you know, in Isaiah, for example, it talks about how, you know, Assyria and Egypt will come and 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 worship, and God actually refers to those nations as His children. So, you know, you have to have a balanced view when you see the passages about judgment about a nation. You also have to look and say, you know, does God also offer redemption? Is there a prophetic even um, stance of redemption toward this nation? And often you'll find that to be the case. As well, because God has always been, you know, in the redeeming business. And, he, in, and while Israel was taken to be God's people that would have the prophets and be the line of the Messiah and be given the scriptures, um, they were to do that to be a light to the nations around them. They often failed in that. But their purpose, the purpose God had for them was for them to be a light to the nations around them so that all could see who the true and living God was and all could come into relationship with him. And we see, though, that people, various people throughout the Old Testament history that are not Hebrews come into relationship with God through their contact with the God of Israel. And so we see that, for example, um, you know, just different scenarios. 
Take, from, take Moses, for example, who led the people out of Egypt. He married an, an Ethiopian woman. That's in Numbers chapter 12, verse 1. Well, that's an interesting thing. You know, he, he marries an, inter, an Ethiopian woman. So we just read from Psalm 68. Now, in Jeremiah chapters 38 and 39, you have a well-known um, Ethiopian here, and he ties in really well with the Ethiopian that we find in Acts chapter 8. So I'm going to read from Jeremiah chapter 38, verses 7 through 13, but just want to give a little bit of context. This is in Jeremiah, so Jeremiah's prophet, and he is basically warning the nation of Israel and others that, hey, you know, Babylon is going to come in, and because of Israel's sins, like you know, Judea and you know, the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel, are going to be basically wiped out by the Babylonians, that people are going to be slaughtered, that people are going to be taken away as captive, that destruction is coming. Well, you can imagine as he's preaching this message that he's not the most popular preacher in Israel. Because people usually don't like to hear messages about, you know, God's judgment is coming. People go, oh, don't, don't say anything about that sort of thing. Just, you know, come on, Jeremiah, can't you preach a positive message? Can't you just preach a positive message just about love and happiness and joy? And then everybody will smile at you and say, thanks for giving us, you know, shake your hand on the way out the door and say, thanks for giving us that message, Jeremiah. We love that one. But that's not the message he gives. He gives a message because of their wickedness, because their hearts were far from God, because they oppressed the poor and the widows, because those who came from other lands that lived in their community, they took advantage of and they harmed and they did not give justice in their courts, but favored those who had the money to buy decisions and stepped and trampled on the poor that God was going to judge them. So you can imagine people hearing that message don't want to hear, hey, we've been living in a way that God finds abhorrent. We don't, they don't want to hear that message. Because, in fact, at this time, while they're worshiping these other gods and these other, you know, these idols throughout the land, they're still going into the assembly of God to make their offerings and their praises. And that most of them would still tell you, oh yes, Yahweh you know, is the God of Israel and is my God. They would say that with their lips, but their hearts were far from God. There was a disconnect between what they would say in the temple of God and how they lived their life in practice. How they lived their life in practice. And what they did in their homes and what they did in their communities. There was a huge disconnect between those things. Yes, God is on our side. Yes, we follow God. We're the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But then they would cheat their neighbors. And they would trample on the poor and the oppressed. And those who came from other lands that lived in their land, they would crush down as they could. And take advantage of them. And never give them justice. But God is a God of justice, and so he says you're going to be judged for that. The prophecy is you're going to be judged for that, and then he's going to bring back a redeemed people. Because, you know, with God's, in, in God's judgment, there's always, an, like, there's always an opportunity for those who humble themselves before God and say, Lord, we've sinned against you. There's always an opportunity for those to be forgiven and redeemed and to be brought back into relationship with God. But God is a God of justice. And we need to remember that. And we, we shouldn't be surprised by that. And in fact, I think we should be thankful for that. Because when we look in our world today and all of the oppression and how, you know, we've got, you know, over a billion people living on less than $2 a day. We've got over a billion people that don't have access to clean water. that don't have proper sanitation. You know, you've got people who, with, without... Things and, and a lot of times people don't have what they should have, and people are exploited in every way imaginable. And they don't have it because the powerful in their place do not give them justice. 
do not desire justice, but exploit those who cannot stand up for themselves. And you see it in our world, in nation among nation, among nation, among nation. And I hope that there's a righteous anger about that within us. That we're not just like, well, so bad for them. But it actually burns something inside of us. Because, I, because God burns towards that. He's always hated that sort of injustice. Yes, God hates. God hates injustice. And he's right and righteous to do so. And we should hate it as well. We should never get to the point where we're just okay with that and where it doesn't affect us. But it's so easy for us in our lives to become desensitized. But God never becomes desensitized. God never does. Anytime the orphans and widows and the poor are trampled on, God burns with anger. That's his stance. You read the Old Testament, and you read about Jesus returning to set up his justice, and you'll see that's his stance. He burns towards that. So Jeremiah gives that message And he gets put in the dungeon for giving that warning. It says in Jeremiah chapter 38, verse 7, Now Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, one of the eunuchs who was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah in the dungeon. And when the king was sitting at the gate of Benjamin, Ebed-Melech went out to the king's house and spoke to the king, saying, My lord the king, these men have done evil, and all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet whom they cast into the dungeon. And he is likely to die from hunger in the place where he is, for there is no more bread in the city. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, saying, Take here from thirty men with you, and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the dungeon before he dies. So Ebed-Melech took the men with him, and went to the house of the king under the treasury, and took from their old clothes and old rags, and let them down by ropes into the dungeon to Jeremiah. Then Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian said to Jeremiah, Please put these old clothes and rags under your armpits, under the ropes. And Jeremiah did so. And so they pulled Jeremiah up with the ropes and lifted him out of the dungeon. And Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. So you had the regular part of the prison and the court of the prison. But then you had the, like, the really bad place where nobody wants to go, the dungeon part. And you couldn't get out of there on your own. So they, you know, Ebed-Melech... Is Ebed Melech the Ethiopian who goes to the king on Jeremiah's behalf and contends for him? That's awesome. That's awesome. You know, and, and really it took an, you know, it's interesting here because it wasn't, you know, a, a Hebrew, it wasn't the common, like, you know, hero of the story that you would expect to be the hero of the story. It's someone who is, you know, from the outside that God uses. Someone on the outside, from the outside who has the heart to see what is just and what is unjust. Now listen to this, because uh, by the time we get to Jeremiah 39, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has taken over everything. And so it says, now Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon gave charge concerning Jeremiah to Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, saying, take him and look after him and do him no harm, but do to him just as he says to you. Now think about that. The invading king says to the prophet, you know, about the prophet Jeremiah, take care of him, to the captain of his guard, take care of Jeremiah, and whatever he says, you do for him. So God had put it in, in Nebuchadnezzar's heart. To treat Jeremiah well. Because Nebuchadnezzar could be a brutal king. He was at times, certainly. But we also know that God, you know, if you read the book of Daniel, what God does in his life and how God humbles Nebuchadnezzar. But do to him just as he says to who? So Nebuchadnezzar and the captain of the guard sent Nebuchadnezzar, Rabseris, Nergal, Sharzir, 
Rab Mag, and all the kings of Babylon's chief, Babylon's chief officers. And then they sent someone to take Jeremiah from the court of the prison and could, committed him to Jedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, that he would take him home. So he dwelt among the people. There's some awesome names in this whole story for, you know, if you're having more kids in the future or more kids, you know, you're just looking here, you can find some really cool names, you know, really cool names. All right, verse 15. But now listen to this. Meanwhile, the word of the Lord came, had come to Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the prison saying, go and speak to Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will bring my words upon this city for adversity and not for good. And they shall be performed in that day before you. But I will deliver you in that day, says the Lord. And you shall not be given into the hand of men of whom you are afraid. For I will surely deliver you, and you shall not fall by the sword, but your life shall be as a prize to you, because you have put your trust in me, says the Lord. How awesome is that? Because, you know, when, when Ebed Melech took that step of faith and he went out on a limb for Jeremiah, he made enemies for himself. Jeremiah's enemies now became his enemies. You understand that, you know, and in, in this is true then and it's true now. Sometimes to do good for someone, to stand up for justice for someone means to make yourself an enemy of another. Because when you stand up for the poor and the oppressed, the people who you're standing up against now view you in the same way or even worse than they did the oppressor. You become even a greater enemy because you are one who is hindering them from doing their evil in the world. Now, especially when it's up close and personal, I'm not talking about, you know, obviously we need to give, but not just about like, you know, giving an online donation or something like that. But when you're actively involved and things get personal, you can become an enemy. Now, we don't want to be anybody's enemy. That's not our goal. And in fact, the scripture tells it from our point of view, we don't treat them as enemies. What does the scripture say to do to us, to us, to love our enemies? So those who count you an enemy, love them. Love them. What does that mean, to love them? It means to pray for them. It means to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them and to give them warning of the truth of God. That's what it means to love the oppressor. To pray for the oppressor, to share the gospel with the oppressor, to warn of God's judgment to the oppressor. Because we have to understand that if the oppressor does not repent, and if the oppressor does not get on his, his or her knees before God and ask for forgiveness, that oppressor will meet the judgment of God. That's the truth of the scripture. You know, and I know, when, and, and you know, Claire and I were talking this week about, about this, how you know, in all the stories we hear, we always want to, if there's, if there's any bad people involved, we always want them to be, you know, just the men. We don't want the idea of bad women. That kind of makes us really uncomfortable. The, you know, the women who would seek to do, to do evil, women who would harm children. You know, that really just kind of like, it's it just so warped from what we expect or what would be, you know, how God made us. And so if there's ever a villain in a story, we always want that villain to be male. Don't want a female villain. Don't want a female oppressor. But there are a lot of, of women who do a lot of oppression in our world as well. And they need that same prayer. And they need that same gospel message. And they need that same warning because when God's judgment comes on those who are oppressed, he's not going, well, all the ladies who oppress, they just get a pass because they're ladies. That's not how it works. And we need to not be so naive in our thinking. It's only the men out there who do bad stuff. But what did God say to Eben Melech? For I will surely deliver you, and you shall not fall by the sword, but your life shall be as a prize to you, because you have put your trust in me, says the Lord. 
that's just awesome. You know, in everything that Eben Melech experienced in his life, because think, he's a cosmopolitan dude, okay, meaning that he has experience in lots of you know different different cultures and different, you know, he's he's comfortable in, in many different cultures. That's what it means basically be cosmopolitan. He's at ease. Except for, you know, when people are trying to kill him. He says he's a little bit fearful of that. You know, that's understandable. Most of us would be. Probably all of us who are rational would be. Um, but, you know, think about the, back in, in the land of Cush in Ethiopia, you know, the, the gods he was exposed to and a lot of that at this point, you know, would have been the Egyptian gods. He's traveled, th- he's had, you know, to get where he is, he's had to go through Egypt. So he's seen all the pyramids. He's seen all the things to the, to the sun god and, and to all these different things. He's an educated man as he's high up in a position of authority. And, and now, you know, he's found his, his way into this, you know, kingdom in Israel. Then you got the Babylonians coming in. So you think about all the different cultures and all the different gods that he's been exposed to, yet he recognizes the gods that I grew up with are not the true and living God, but Yahweh God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the true and living God, and he puts his trust in the Lord. He puts his trust in the Lord. He comes to recognize who the true living God is. So, now that, that's important because as we get to this Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts chapter 8, he's a person of great authority. He's in charge of the treasury of you know, the queen of Ethiopia, and that was a kingdom that was run by queens. Okay, so he's, he's got this power and authority. He's also a cosmopolitan dude, and that he's traveled a lot, and he's experienced a lot of different culture. And, you know, he speaks Greek. We know that because he's reading the Old Testament in Greek when Philip comes to meet him. So now think about Philip who grow up, I mean, he's a Hebrew, but he's a Greek-speaking Hebrew. He's one of the ones that was appointed with that dispute with the Hebrew-speaking. Um, widows were being favored in the distribution of the goods over the Greek-speaking widows. And so he's one of the Greek-speaking dudes that was put you know, in charge of that distribution. So they have a, he's going to have a common language. He's able to, to communicate with this Ethiopian eunuch because... They, the, the main language in the world at this time is Greek, and you know, many, many, many people spoke it. Um, and so he's able to communicate, not in his you know, Hebrew or in the, language of the, the home language of the Ethiopian, but in this common language that they share. And so, again, he's a, you know, we talked about how these Hebrews who were Greek speakers, when this persecution came, they were in... They had the most opportunities to share the good news of Jesus with many people from many different nations because they spoke the language of, of that part of the world. You know, and again, we have to remember at this time, you know, most people spoke at least two languages. Many people spoke, you know, more than two languages, not an uncommon thing. Um, and so, verse 26 of chapter 8. So this is after Philip has been in Samaria. And as for Philip, an angel of the Lord said to him, go south. Hence our go south man for today. But go south down to the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so he started out and he met the treasurer of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under the Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. Or yours might say Candace. And either way, that's just a title for queen. It's kind of like saying the Pharaoh is the king. It's just their terminology of how they describe the queen. The eunuch had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and he was now returning. Seated in his carriage, he was reading aloud from the book of the prophet Isaiah. And the Holy Spirit said to Philip, Go over and walk beside the carriage. And Philip ran over and heard the man reading from the prophet Isaiah. Philip asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And the man replied, how can I unless someone instructs me? And he urged Philip to come up into the carriage and sit with him. And the passage of scripture he had been reading was this. 
He was led like a, a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was humiliated and received no justice. And who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? And the eunuch asked Philip, tell me, was the prophet talking about himself or someone else? So beginning with the same scripture, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. Let's stop there for a minute. So we have that scene where you know, the, the instruction from the Lord was clear. An angel of the Lord said, came to him and said, go south down to the desert road. Go south down to the desert road. And it didn't, you know, it didn't tell him why. Didn't tell him why. It says, go south down to this desert road. And that's the instruction that the angel gives. Like, there's no more instruction to that. They doesn't say, like, why? And, you know, Philip had been around lots of people and been preaching the gospel. Why do you want to go out to, the, to this road in the desert? Like, what, you know, what's the point of this? But you don't see Philip questioning that a lot. It kind of makes sense. You know, an angel of the Lord comes and says, hey, go do this. It's kind of best just to go do that. And he had probably, you know, Philip knew his Old Testament, and he knows whenever that sort of thing happens to a person, it's best they just go ahead and do what God says, because you're probably going to end up doing what God says anyway, just maybe the hard way, like Jonah. <laughs> you know, so, you know, he takes off down south, but without a clear mission, just a direction, just a location, go down south on this road. But then when he's there, the Holy Spirit says to him, go over and walk beside that carriage. You know, he has that tug in his heart. That's where you need to be. This is why you are here. Go and talk to the man in that chariot carriage, you know, sort of, you know, thing going down the road. And at this point in history, you know, the Romans had made awesome roads all over the place. Um, And so it's probably a really... You know, really good road that he's going along. But it says Philip ran over. You know, he had to catch up. But, you know, he is, you see some um, intensity in Philip to do the Lord's will. He's not like, okay, if I got to, I'll kind of mosey over and make my way to this chariot to Talk to this guy because that's what God told me to do. But no, there's an enthusiasm in his life. And we see that throughout, you know, we see that throughout his life. There's an enthusiasm in his life for God. And so he runs that chariot. He runs that chariot. And he hears the man reading from the prophet Isaiah. And talk about timing. And obviously, God's hand is in this, right? Because where is this man reading from? But Isaiah chapter fifty-three, one of the best passages we have that show the the prophetic declaration that the Son of God would come and be crucified, you know, to pay for our sins. Written six hundred years before Jesus came on the earth, that these words were written. And if you read the whole passage, you know, you can take. A, you can take a person, actually this is a you know, thing to do if you have a, 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 you know, a, a person of Israelite descent that you're friends with or family you know, with. If you take Isaiah 53 and you just print it out without it saying that where it's from and you just ask a person to, to read this, especially if they're not you know, in, in the tabernacle you know, sort of thing all the time or the synagogue, excuse me, if they're not in the synagogue, on a regular basis. And you ask them to read that and you say, who is this about? And who wrote it? Many, many times the response will be, well, that has to be about Jesus and it's from the New Testament. It has to be from Jesus and it has to be from the New Testament. But no. Well, yes and no. Yes, it's about Jesus. And no, it's not from the New Testament. It's from the Old Testament book of Isaiah written 600 years before Jesus walked on the earth.
He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was humiliated and received no justice. And who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth. And so when the eunuch asked Philip, is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? That was the opening door. And so this is where Philip began with the scripture. It's not the only scripture he used, but this is where he began with the scripture to tell this man the good news about Jesus Christ. The scripture is powerful. And it reminds us of what's said in the book of Romans, chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. And so we see that Philip had beautiful feet and those feet were willing to run to tell people about Jesus. They were willing to run to go and to tell somebody the good news. I contend with you this morning that yes, Philip did that out of his obedience to God, but it's, his obedience to God is an indication of his love for God and his love for his neighbor. In this case, the love for his neighbor, the Ethiopian eunuch, his neighbor. He loved him. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something that might be a little bit strong to us this morning, but it's to myself and to all of us. That if you have people you call your neighbors and friends that you, that you know do not have the Lord and you haven't had a conversation with them about the Lord, do not claim that you love them. Don't claim it. Don't claim it. You can claim that you like them. You can claim that you are affectionate towards them. But you cannot claim in the biblical sense of the word that you love that individual. You can't claim it. Because love just doesn't let people walk toward God's judgment without saying anything. Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't do that. Love demands... You know, love is not just a feeling. Love, love requires an, an action. Love requires some, some words about our Savior. We're going to say that we love. If we're going to have a biblical sense of what we mean by that word love, and not just a worldly sense, not just a fleshly sense, not just a common application of I love pizza and I love this and I love that, but we're going to have agape love, a godly love towards people. We can't claim it if we're silent about our Savior. Can't claim it. So if you want to be challenged today, if you don't want to be challenged, there's not much I can do for you. Not much any preaching will do for you. You know, I, I know that you're here this morning I believe that you're here this morning, not because you want somebody to stroke your ego or to tickle your ears or to make you feel great when you walk out. But you came to worship God. You came here for Jesus. And you also, you, you listen to preaching because you don't want to be told all the time that, you know, everything is just great and you just do just nothing more and everything's fine. You don't want that. I mean, if, there's plenty of churches that will give you that if that's what you want. Plenty of churches will give you that. But you don't want that. You, you want truth. You want truth that sometimes is hard truth. You want to be loved enough to be told the truth. That's what I want. Whenever I hear you know, preaching, whenever somebody else here on a Sunday morning preaches, I don't want to be, just sit there and go, well, I feel better about my, myself. I go pat myself on the back, and I go home without any challenge. I don't want that. I want to be inspired to love Jesus more. I want to be inspired to love my neighbor more. And by love, I mean take some action. Because like any of you, I myself sometimes need my tail kicked.
But, you know, Philip's life and his eternal destiny has been so radically changed by his relationship with Jesus, that his following of Jesus, that this isn't some aberration, that this isn't some ab, you know, weird thing for him to go and to tell somebody about the Lord. But this is out of who he is. And really, that's what it's got to be for you and me today. Telling people about Jesus can't just be a, a responsibility or a job. I mean, that'll get you to tell somebody about Jesus like, okay, I've, I hear you. I'm going to go tell this person about Jesus now. But I'm talking about a life and a lifestyle of telling people about Jesus comes out of who you are. And that can only come out of walking closely with Jesus. Otherwise, your, your presentation of Jesus isn't going to be very convincing. It's not going to be very convincing. There was actually a, uh, an old writing written by a preacher, an Ethiopian preacher, talking about, and this was um, a time when people were coming in, you know, there was a lot of warfare and, and oppression. He said, you know, I didn't think people would want to hear um, a message about God's, about God's judgment and about Jesus and about these things. But preaching and teaching all day and, and people keep coming at night to be baptized. Because they see the joy in our lives. Because they see the joy in our lives. Because a Jesus-filled life is a joyful life that goes beyond circumstances. We're in circumstances a lot of times about happiness, but a perspective and, a, and an attitude toward life and a way to walk in life that the joyful life is a life walking with Jesus. So for it to be convincing, there has to be some reality in our own hearts and, and minds. They have to be able to see it within us, that it's changed us, and it's made us into different people than we used to be. And if it hasn't made us into different people than we used to be, then we have to reevaluate Am I really walking with the Lord? Are we walking closely together? Because when we walk close with him, he, he, he's got to do his work in us, and he's got to change a lot of things within us. And he's going to keep doing that. It's an ongoing process. It doesn't really stop. You know, there, there, I really don't think until you see him face to face and become exactly like he is, there's no time on this earth where he's just kind of like, well, I'm, I'm done with what I'm doing in you and how I'm forming you and shaping you. He's not done. Whether you've been walking with him for a year or 50 years, he's not done. He's not done. His shaping and, and changing and molding of you. God is not done with making you more like Jesus. He's not done. So people need us to explain the good news of Jesus to them. They need a clear explanation. They need a clear explanation. And it's our responsibility to be able to share it clearly. And it's a simple message. We've all sinned. There's a penalty for sin. But God's love and grace are greater and available through faith in Jesus Christ. Simple message. You, you know, you, it's a simple message. So as they, verse 36, as they rode along, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, there's some water. Why can't I be baptized? And he ordered the carriage to stop, and they went down in the water, and Philip baptized him. And so, you know, we see here, by this point, Philip has explained all the gospel to him. By this point, you know, the Ethiopian eunuch has put faith in Christ because this baptism is not just about, you know, it's not taking a bath. It's not, you know, just getting wet or something like that. It's a, it's a symbol of I'm a disciple of Jesus because we know what Jesus said. Go into all the world and make disciples of all the people groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
So he's heard all of this of what's what he's supposed to, you know, what his response of faith is supposed to be and what his actions are now supposed to be. And so, you know, we understand this is one of the things that Jesus told, you know, should happen. There's a, there's a good number of things as you read the Gospels where Jesus expects of his, of his followers that he, he desires us to, to do and to participate in. Um, and many of those things are how we live our everyday lives, but there are a few things that are specific, um, communal, you know, as a testimony to others, as a, as a sharing in our faith, you know, with other people uh, that we're supposed to participate, to participate in. And it's a natural response for him because when you think about it, Spiritually speaking, this Ethiopian eunuch is identifying himself with Christ as a follower of Christ from this point forward. So he wants to obey all the things that, that God has given him to do, to be a part of. That's, you know, this, this is one of the things that it means to be a, a follower of Jesus. And I think that a lot of times in how we present the gospel now, we kind of can lose this element of it. Because we, we do focus, you know, we focus a lot on the, you know, being saved from judgment. And that's, that's true, and we have to keep that part of it. But when we talk about being a disciple, being a disciple means that you're going to become like your teacher, like you're going to strive to become like your teacher. And that requires a, a life, a daily life that is focused on living with God and for God. And what that requires is if, if, a, if a disciple is going to be like a teacher, then there has to be trust and there has to be obedience. There has to be trust and there has to be obedience. There has to be a, and this is a terrible word I know to use in our world today, there has to be submission. There has to be submission to God. There has, there has to be that element there. Where we strive and we say, Lord, part, part of being a disciple of Jesus is, is acknowledging I'm not the boss anymore. Now, this wasn't as big of a cultural hurdle for someone like this Ethiopian eunuch. Yes, he's a man of authority and he has a lot of people underneath him that he can direct and say, you do this, you do that. But he's also a man under authority. The queen says, you can't go to Jerusalem. He doesn't go to Jerusalem. The queen says, I want you to go over here to this place. Well, it doesn't matter what else he had planned for the next six months. He's, he's gone. Like He's got to go, you know, go over to the Arabian Peninsula. Go. Do this. What's he going to do? He's going to do it. I mean, so, you know, and, and having a boss like that is different than like your employment today where your boss can say, Hey, I don't want to. I want you to go do this, and you're like, I don't want to do that. I quit. He can't exactly quit his job. It doesn't work like that. You know, it's a different cultural expectation. You know, in, in, in this in this sort of setup with these kingdoms and, and whatnot, and even still in lots of the world today, to say to refuse an order is like saying you can kill me now. And obviously. You know, it's not like that well, in large degree. Sometimes it is. But it's not like that with, with God all the time. And, and that's not how we should view it as this like, well, if I don't do what God says, then whatever. But out of love for him and out of respect for him, we should certainly desire whatever God says, yes, that's what I want to do. So what that just means by definition is that you and I are not supposed to be the bosses of our own lives. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And I think that we've missed out a lot on that because we have the Savior part down pretty good. At least in our church, we have the Savior part down pretty good. But sometimes we miss out on the King part where Jesus is King and where what he says goes. So Jesus says, love your enemies. It's not a suggestion. He's not suggesting that you love your enemies. He commands you to love your enemies. It's just a strictly a matter of, do I want to be, will I be obedient to that command 
or will I not be obedient to that command? But it's not a suggestion. He's not just like, hey, be kind of nice if you loved your enemies. That's not Jesus' perspective here. It's, you follow me, you follow, you, you say you follow him. You know, because what else does Jesus say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I say? To say Lord, Lord means you do the things that he says. Like, those go hand in hand. It's like the people in, you know, back in Jeremiah's day, when they're going to the temple, and they're saying, we follow you, God, we praise you, and then not doing what he said, you know, not living that out, and instead oppressing people. Well, that doesn't fly with God. And since Jesus is God, it doesn't fly with Jesus. He doesn't tolerate that. He doesn't, he doesn't, no, no. And, you know, so people have this warped view of their relationship with Jesus, that their relationship with Jesus is optional. You know, on the things that they want to be cool with Jesus on, they can be cool with Jesus on and do those things. And the things that they don't want to do, that Jesus says to do, well, they can just not do those things, and that it's not going to have any effect on their spiritual life or on their life in general. People view it a lot of times as a la carte with Jesus. Like, like you know, he's just got these different things on the buffet line where it's like, love your enemy, you know, pray for those who persecute you, um, give to the poor, you know, all these different, you know, just put out everything Jesus says. And people go, well, I like this one about giving to the poor, but I don't like this one about loving my enemy. So I leave that behind, just like I don't necessarily want to eat the okra, the non-fried okra, the slimy one. Just like I don't really necessarily want to eat that slimy one, I can just leave that behind. And then it's all good. That's not how it is with our walk with Jesus. When Jesus tells us to do things, he's not like, well, I asked you to do this, but you don't want to, and so that's all good. It's not how it works. But we have tricked ourselves a lot of times into thinking how that works so that in our relationship with Jesus, we become the boss, we become the leader, and Jesus is there to do our bidding. So when we need something or we want something, hey, Jesus, could you help me out? Hey, Jesus, could you provide this or that? As if Jesus is your servant and you're the king. Because we've already told Jesus, these are things I will and won't do. This is where I will be obedient, and this is where I won't be obedient. Now go do this and that for me. And we fully understand that Jesus made himself a servant of all when he went to the cross and he died for our sins. But that didn't make us king over him. That didn't make us king over him. We understand that he is lowly and that he is humble and that he is patient and he is gracious and he is merciful. And thank him for that. Because how many times have I deserved just to be struck down in my shoes? Thank him for that. But let's not misunderstand this where we're the king and Jesus is a servant. No, he's made us kings and priests, but we're still his servants. He's the ultimate king. He's the ultimate king. And our job, our responsibility, and it shouldn't be even a job or a responsibility, but it should just come out of love for him, is, Jesus, what do you, what do you desire from me, from us? And that's what we're going to strive all the time to give you. That's what we're going to strive. Because this life, once you become a disciple of Jesus, your life is no longer yours, and this life isn't about you. And it's not about me. I can't have the first place. I don't even really get second place. You know, people with all the, I am second, that's become popular. Well, that's a great, that, and that's a kind of a great start. <coughs> but we're not really supposed to be second either. How does it work? Jesus is first. 
others are second. We're somewhere after that. If we want to be like Jesus, because he made himself again a servant of others. And that might sound a little bit like it's going around in a circle, but it's, but it's not. Okay, finish this up. Finish this up, okay. Verse 39, when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. And the eunuch never saw him again, but went on his way rejoicing. So now the eunuch has Jesus, the eunuch has the Holy Spirit. The eunuch has the Old Testament scriptures. Now again, being a cosmopolitan person is going to travel, and everything's traveling this time. As the Gospels are written, as the letters of the Apostles are written, these things are going to get transferred. This isn't the only, necessarily the only information that he's going to get and receive. He has the Old Testament already, lots of it. You know, he's got the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures, what we call the Old Testament scriptures. And he's going to get more, I believe. Can't just like prove that, but it makes sense because, again, everything's traveling and moving. And things can move now at a rapid rate with these roads and with ships and with everything. Yeah, it's not like sending an email, but it's not like 10, 15 years either. Okay? So, you know, things are, can move at a rapid rate in these areas. But I would hope that a passage like this would remove a little bit of our Euro-American-centric view of our faith. Because there was a church in Ethiopia before there was ever a church in Germany or France or England. Do we understand that? Like the, the church of God, true believers, followers of Jesus, were active in those places, you know, in... Egypt and Ethiopia and other parts of northern Africa far before they were in Europe. And yet so much of our faith can be a Eurocentric kind of perspective to, you know, kind of go back to the 1500s and the Reformation and things like that. But there's a lot more to church history, a lot more to church history. And a lot of the stuff even that we talk about in European church history isn't really even the church because followers of Jesus don't do a lot of the things that was done in the name of Jesus in those days. Okay? But again, as we see through the prophet Jeremiah, people can go and say anything they want to. So we would be less concerned about people saying the right things versus people living the right way. Living in a way that seeks to please God. Not living a perfect life, because obviously none of us can do that, but seeking to live in a way that pleases God and being humble and repentant when we're not, when we fail. So meanwhile, Philip found himself farther north in town of Azotus, and he preached the good news there and in every town along the way until he came in Ces- to Caesarea. Now, this is where we're going to end. Because he ends up in Caesarea, and we know from the book of Acts, he's still in Caesarea. He's in Caesarea, actually, with his four daughters at that point in his life. And so that's years have passed. Okay? Paul's been on all of his missionary journeys. You know, Paul's, we're going to have his conversion coming soon. And then he, all of his missionary journeys and all these churches being planted and all these visits and everything else, Philip still in Caesarea. Why'd he camp out in Caesarea? Why'd he stay there? Well, Caesarea is on the Mediterranean Sea. It was a port city built by Herod. And the thing about this, you talk about Roman engineering in this time, is just out of this world. So they made a cement that could harden in water because there's no natural port there. And they made one of the largest ports in the world man-made. And they had to make cement that would harden in water in order to do it. And for that, they needed volcanic ash, which they had plenty of back in Italy. And so they shipped it over by the ton. I mean, things are not like... Basic and people in this time, like 
live in little huts and trying just to scrape up enough on a little piece of land to survive. I mean, we're talking about like thriving economies and extremely high levels of engineering to where our modern engineers have just recently, you know, in the last 30 years, have figured out how they make concrete that good. How they can make it do what it's done. And, I mean, it's still there. Like, you go down to the, to the bottom, and there's huge, massive pieces of concrete that still are there in Caesarea that, you, that are still hard 2,000 years later. It's impressive. But why is he there? Just because, wow, this is a cool, really cool harbor here? No, because that port city means trade, and trade means lots of people from lots of different places. And so Philip can camp out in Caesarea and preach the gospel to, the, to many parts of the world. That's why he's there. Because when people come into those port cities and get loaded and everything, they tend to, you know, you're going to be back in the ocean for a while. You tend to stay on land for a little bit, kind of get back to health and get ready to go again. There's going to be some days that people, those ships are coming in and they're staying in that port city. And that's Philip's opportunity to preach the gospel. People from all over the world. And he has the common language that all these people, that at least somebody on that boat's going to speak. And that person or those people who speak that language can then share it with everybody else on their boat. And so he's going to reach people from all over the place. Well, what's that mean for us today? You realize in the city of Athens, just at the University of Georgia, that there are people from 125 different nations that come for their education here. Do you realize, you know, the, the I mean, well over 100 ethnicities and, and people groups of people that have just, you know, reside in Athens and have made their home at least for a little bit of time, a few years, or more. You know, sometimes we talk about, well, we're going to go to this place to share the gospel. And that's all good. You know my heart. You know I'm all for that. But also, the world is in Athens. The world has come here to study, to live, to have families, to do these different things. People are here. So like Philip did at Caesarea, The Lord calls you to stay here. Some of you, he obviously has, because you've been here for now, for a while. 10 years, 15 years, whatever. There's people coming in from all over the world. And the question is, are they going to meet Jesus while they're here? The ones that don't know him yet. So the gospel is, you know, from all the world to all the world at this point. And you think about, you know, believers in a place like South Korea, where, you know, it took some time for the gospel to really take root there in any sort of like multitudes sort of way. But I think per believer, they send out more missionaries than anybody else. From the world to the world. You know, and that's, but here, where we are, the world has come to us, so we'll get the people that are here, then we can send out people, you know, two different places as we have and we'll continue to do. And we're going to keep on being part of God's mission to make disciples of all the people groups. But like Philip was in a strategic place to be able to do that, so are we. You know, and, and I really, I hope and I pray that we don't use the size of our church or the resources of our church or any of that as an excuse Because the early church, what did they have? What were their resources? They had the Old Testament scriptures. Now they had the apostles. That's a pretty big advantage, of course. They had the Holy Spirit. They had the scriptures that were being written and receiving those. But they had a message. They had a message. And that message trumps any sort of people resource or any sort of financial resource or anything else that you can have. When you have a, you have a message and a vision. And those were given to them by Jesus himself. And those are given to us by Jesus himself. So we just need to make sure we understand we live in a, in a no-excuse 
time, and we're a no-excuse church when it comes to sharing the gospel with our neighbors, with the people in our lives. No excuses. Can't hear, we're too small, we don't have enough money to do this or that, because you don't need money to go tell people about Jesus in your, you know, just in your daily life. You know, there's, we don't need a big extra budget for that. You just talk to people in your life about Jesus. We start there, be in good shape. And I know a lot of you already do that. But my heart is that we keep that as our you know, focus. And we're sitting there, it's like that mission that God gave us to all the nations, it's like, you know, you can't fulfill that on your own. I can't fulfill that on my own. No follower of Jesus has ever been able to. But how about make one disciple? How about just make one disciple? Let that be, Lord, help me to, make, help me to grow as a disciple, and Lord, help me to make one disciple. If you've made disciples already, Lord, help me to make one more disciple. And after one, Lord, help me make two disciples. Okay? I mean, you see, now we go from addition to multiplication pretty quick. But, you know, instead of saying, Lord, help me change the world, Lord, use my life to help change one person's life. Let's start there. Because there's nothing in the world that you can do that's bigger than participating with God in changing somebody's life. You know, you want, you know, a lot of times we want kind of this huge, big thing. How about we just break it down to its basic, its basic building block is one person. That's the basic building block of any movement of God. One person, one person, one person, one person. One person.